as everyone's coming in, can I just ask that you actually move into the center of the rows and get meet your neighbor? I think more people are going to be coming in as the afternoon progresses, and for all of these amazing artists and then our poets. So, um, yeah, if 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 you can leave the aisles open so that it's easier for latecomers to get in, that would be great. Also, if anyone's seen Chaz John, he needs to get on stage. <laughs> Is it on now? Then it's on now. Does that turn it on? Is that on? Okay, I think we're gonna get started then. Um, it's, we're like amazingly very close to on time for today. Um, I'm Laura Phipps, um, a settler and a grateful um, guest on Lenape Hoking. We heard from Joe Baker earlier um, about the history and the presence and present of the Lenape, um, which was such an important reminder, I think, um, that the effects of settler colonialism um, and displacement are ongoing, which um, was, uh, again, a reminder um, for me to, um, to think about my responsibility both as an individual and as a representative of a Museum of American Art, um, what really um, my responsibility to indigenous art and artists, um, and to, among many other things, centering indigenous perspectives is. Um, so I'm grateful, Joe, for that reminder and for all of us that um, are here together today um, to do that work. Um, I am also, along with Caitlin Chason, the curator of jean Clictacy Smith Memory Map. Um, thank you to Jean for everything. Um, if it weren't honor enough to get to curate the show with John, I also have the honor of um, moderating our final panel of uh, this incredible day. Um, and I'm gonna be really brief because um, 
I want to get right to hearing the voices of the artists, but I do just want to take a moment to thank um, the incredible staff, my colleagues at the Whitney. Jean often gives me a lot of credit, but I know that she knows that there are so many others that have doing this work, and in particular today, Megan and Andy, um, Elizabeth and Andrea and Tim and Aresti um, and Ashley, <laughs> Alex, many others that are not only, um, you know, getting us all food, water, microphones, um, but also recording this so that it um, can be shared widely and so that it lives for posterity as well. Um, so I want to thank all of you all. And just to say, this is um, yeah the final panel before we have some readings and a celebration this evening. And we gave this panel the title Aesthetics, which is um, not just to be as vague as possible. Um, instead, <laughs> maybe spinning it uh, a different way, thinking about um, the term that we needed a term that could be as uh, capacious and as inclusive as possible um, to contain the conversation that we'll have about these incredible practices. And um, I do think that's the spirit of the conversation as well. Um, as we'll all see, um, we're gonna hear about some truly varied practices from artists at different phases in their lives and careers. I think this is the gift that Jean gives us, bringing together these intergenerational um, connections. And um, I'd say that I feel not only are these artists grappling with um, or questioning the expectations uh, of indigenous aesthetics, but also approaching material and social practice from really expansive perspectives. So despite all of the differences in practices and approaches that we'll see in individual presentations, one thing that really strikes me is this overarching or maybe more accurately underlying confidence in art as communication, um, in art as a pathway to knowledge and into understanding of complex histories. I think um, we'll hear about that today. And I just, I want to thank um, Doreen for reminding us in the last presentation that Native peoples are the authors of their own stories. And with that, I'm going to pass it on. So we'll start um, with the artist to my right, Joe Baker. Thank you. Um, I would like to express my gratitude and thanks to each and every one of you who have brought your spirit and your, your beauty to this afternoon, this morning, and last evening. Um, my thanks to the Whitney, who's opened their doors to contemporary Native art. Um, and certainly... You know, I'm thinking on a very personal level, it's been a, a sort of a journey for me um, to see old friends, uh, Jean Quictacy, Pete Jemison, and Joanna Bigfeather, really pretty special. Uh, and then you realize how long you've been in these rooms, you know, <laughs> and, and how much work there's yet to do. So um, I value your, uh, your time, the time you've given to this discussion and, and uh, I appreciate you. So what I'd like to do today is, is share with you some upcoming exhibits that we are working on with, uh, for Lenape Center. Um, Lenape Center was created 13 years ago. There are only three of us and we've been knocking on doors for 13 years. And I would say it's only in the past five have things started to shift. 
And so with that comes a certain excitement. Um, and I'll probably ramble on and get crazy, so I'll be watchful of my time. I'd like to begin with uh, this introduction, Nora Thompson-Dean. I mentioned her this morning, uh, Lenape teacher and herbalist for my community in Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up around this incredible traditional woman. Uh, she was the last fluent speaker of our language. And we are opening an exhibition to honor Nora Thompson-Dean at the Morgan Library and Museum next month, June 8th, which is in the Rotunda, which is a collection of her, her writings, her, her stories, her, her um, photographs. And along with that, we just planted in the garden at the Morgan uh, Lenape Ancestral Corn Sasapsing, um, beans, uh, and we this year for the first time acquired uh, the ancestral finger squash, Lenape squash. So we're, it, I, I'm so excited to think in terms of, you know, everyone knows the Morgan and only last year did they open. It's what is a very formal garden. And yet, walking down Madison Avenue, you're going to see corn that is growing in the gardens at the Morgan. My next wish is to take over the parkway on Park Avenue and replace all the tulips with Lenape corn. Don't know that I'm gonna get there, but I'm working on it. I said that last night, I said, you know, it's like, I, I, I wanna, these big ideas, you know, it's great. Um, I'm sharing with you our seed rematriation project, which is located outside of Kingston, New York, outside of Hurley. Um, and again, this relates very directly to Nora Thompson-Dean. Four years ago, we began this partnership with Hudson Valley Farm Hub, and we acquired just a handful of seeds. We had enough seeds of Lenape corn to have for the first year, a crop of 120 plants. So we brought the seeds, and we think of the seeds, indigenous people think of seeds as our relatives. So we were able to bring these ancestral seeds back to our ancestral home. And that is an act of uh, return. It's an act of repair. It's an act of love the seeds that we were able to acquire had been passed through the generations in the um, family of Nora Thompson-Dean. And upon her passing, she secured those with a seed bank. So those are the very seeds that passed through all of our forced removals to Oklahoma and four years ago returned. Uh, these are uh, two photographs you see of the cornfield, uh, both in the uh, early spring and then uh, in the fall. Seeds as relatives, seeds as, as cultural markers, because it's not just about seeds. It's about the songs 
and the dances that accompany them. It's It's about sustaining life. So I want to, uh, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking here for a minute. Someone said, hey, what happened to that Joe Baker? He moved to New York. He grew his hair long. And I hear he's turned into a radical. And I said, well, wait a minute. Some, someone who knew me from Phoenix said, oh, he's always been a radical. But I was thinking about that. And in terms of a seed, the radical is the first shoot that comes out of the seed. It comes to anchor that seed and bring nutrients to the seed itself so that it can flourish. So to be a radical is to be really special. So I take that uh, compliment as a compliment. We also are growing uh, three different varieties of Lenape beans. Uh, and then the other thing I would say about seeds, it's been a learning process for me. I didn't know there were seed collectors. You know, I've been in the museum uh, for many, many years, and I'm well aware of collectors who collect our belongings and keep them. Well, there's a whole group of these seed collectors who have acquired indigenous seed they keep them, and then they market them and profit from them. And they've taken our seeds from our communities, and they hold them hostage, like our belongings in museums. So I'm really, really excited to see, among our young people, a keen interest in farming, a keen interest in agriculture, sort of a return to uh, the natural foods and life ways of our people. Along with this process in the garden, we uh, last year brought back the corn mask through a carving. We carved the corn mask pole um, and installed that in the garden. The uh, process for me was exhilarating and beautiful and uh, very much not done individually, but done in community. The uh, paint for the, for the ash itself uh, was uh, ground charcoal for the black and a red oxide for the red. And the medium was bare fat. And what I can tell you about that, that pole has been up through the seasons over a year and it's still perfect. It's still, it still holds. Uh, and there you see the pole installed in, in the Lenape Garden. Uh, that's our co-director, Curtis Zuniga, who returned uh, from Oklahoma, our tribal community, uh, to work within the garden. A new exhibit opening September 9th at the Michener Museum. I'm co-curating along with uh, Laura Igo, who is in the room. Wave, Laura, there she is. The exhibit is entitled Never Broken, Visualizing Lenape Histories. And this uh, image that you see is a painting, one of the propaganda pieces the, um, by uh, Benjamin West of, the William, of William uh, Penn's Treaty, um, which was really uh, propaganda to just, you know, it was horrible. And um, 
we, through this exhibit, hope to dismantle this uh, inaccurate narrative of indig indigenous histories. Um, along with the ex exhibition, um, oops, that's, Okay, I, th I think there's a slide missing. That's okay. Along with the exhibition, we, we have brought uh, to the discussion, we've commissioned Lenape artists, contemporary artists, to respond uh, to this historical narrative and in creating new work. Um, and three of those artists, uh, Holly Wilson, a member of Delaware Nation and Anadarko, Oklahoma, Nathan Young, uh, Delaware Tribe of Indians, and also one of the founders of uh, commodity, uh, a post-commodity, and uh, David Half. So I think this really represents the first time that we're going to see contemporary, all contemporary Lenape artists responding to historic narratives within an exhibition. So here we go. And then in September, uh, for the opening of the Perlman Theater, Perlman Performing Arts Center, uh, we are opening an exhibition entitled Kishu, which is the Lenape word for sun. It is a series of large format photographs of the corn mask pole uh, by Devin Pickering. The photographs were taken over a period of five months uh, and in the time frame of uh, sunrise to twilight. And those will be exhibited in the Doris Duke Theater uh, as a commemorative exhibition for the opening of uh, the Perlman Theater. In addition to that, uh, we are creating a live performance entitled When We Left, The Land Noticed. And that will, is being choreographed by Lenape Center with a special guest appearance by Roman Zaragoga, who, goes, who is going to commemorate the opening of the Performing Arts Center. Uh, you'll hear the deep resonance of the water drum. And we've been able to bring back the war, war dance songs that haven't been sung in hundreds of years uh, from uh, archival footage that was housed uh, within our tribal offices. And rec recognizing and reclaiming these traditions, these connections, I think is necessary uh, to our healing. And I think for all of us, all of you, who are invested in this art narrative. It has the potential uh, to bring new life and new energy and, and new wholeness uh, to life's uh, uh, magical uh, experience. So with that, thank you, Wanishi. Um, 
um, uh, get you be too big, Ninda Nungum, Mekanak Nendotem, Mikoich Bizendawiek. For those who can speak Ojibwe in the room, to know Hyde Erdrich is here and Melissa Olson just snuck in. So there's a few of you. Um, my name is Andrea Carlson, and I'm an artist in Turtle Clan. I'm, uh, uh, I belong to Grand Portage through my father. I am also Scandinavian, and I currently live in Grand Marais. And some of you might know that I also live in Chicago. Um, thank you all for being here. And there's been a lot of thank yous that have been going around. Miigwech, miigwech, miigwech. I want to. Uh, include, I want to piggyback on all of the thank yous that have been going around, but I won't list everyone's name here today. Um, I don't mean to break everybody's hearts, but uh, I just wanted to include some works by the late artist Jim Denemy, who passed away a little bit over a year. He would be here today laughing. Um, I'd see his, his braid and his beaded vest would be walking through here. And um, and we miss him terribly. So I wanted to share his work with you today. Um, here's another one of his pieces, Medicine Bear from 2018. These are not my works, these are his, and, um, and we, we have been carrying him in our hearts. So this is a piece by myself, a Sunshine and a Cannibal from 2015. Um, a lot of my work is about, or it's, it's interested in not cultural appropriation, but like this idea of an, an assimilative process of um, storytelling or ideas that came through colonization where indigenous people were um, kind of defamed, treated really terribly, accused of, of being Wendigos, accused of being cannibals, and then that justified violence towards our bodies and our persons. And so there's this kind of um, metaphor or thought uh, in a lot of, a lot of uh, Native folks of North America will use the, um, the idea of the cannibal to talk about uh, colonization, to talk about how it was actually Europe uh, uh, consuming our bodies and, and hurting us and trying to you know, assimilate us into the European body, meanwhile accusing us of, of this the most terrible thing that, that we can think of. So I, I, I caught wind of this, this kind of scholarly pursuit through this idea, this metaphoric idea of cannibalism. Listen, I'm not interested in cannibalism for real, like the real thing. <laughs> I, if I, whenever I even bring it up, I feel like, uh, I don't know, I, I just feel like people think I'm creepy. Um, <laughs> it's creepy. So in this piece, Sunshine and a Cannibal, it's like that exposure of of those of that power dynamic, of that co consumption. At the center, it says, insert trigger warning here in brackets, in cases where the subject is also the primary audience. And that's like a message back to either the institution or venue or whatever organization is presenting that you know you would that would be instructional language for them for like say films where there might be. Um, uh, instances of, of savagery, you know, you'd be like, if your audience was all native and you were going to show something like the film Mondo Kane, 
to, <laughs> to a NATO audience, you would all of a sudden feel self-conscious about it. But if you as always assume a white audience, you might always feel free to do that with impunity. So I kind of wanted to put this instruction at the center of it in order to, to have that, that, that awareness of audience. And then there's the Tower of Babel in the center that's inverted, this you know, Babylon built on Babylon, Rome built upon Rome. These things kind of just regenerate and repile on unless we have intervention. Then of course you can see at the sides, Eve's Clint's um, blue lady paintbrushes, things like, you know, these, this kind of a toolness that is, is also comes up in the art world. These are four stacked landscapes. I, I think la landscapes for indigenous people is very complicated um, because, of course, we have very uh, kind of a, a, a very, it's, I wouldn't say unique, but as, as far as other racial construct groups, indigenous people have a very, like that's what, what makes us indigenous is that, you know, connection to the land. We have an Ojibwe uh, oral tradition and, and thought and philosophy is that, you know, we're on the fourth world. There's four worlds. I have them stacked up. I also want to make landscapes you could never get into. You could never get into my paintings. You're very aware of the surface. You're aware that these are cut up pieces that you couldn't pass into. You can't, you can't get there from here. And I feel like that's sometimes how we even discuss non-colonial or decolonial ideas is that sometimes you can't, can, can you ever actually get there? Can you ever actually, is it, is it going to always perpetually remain an idea that, that we have a hard time actually arriving at? So I, 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 these are like landscapes of denial. Um, there's another one, this one's called Ink Babble. It's in the collection currently at the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. And it's 15 feet wide by a little over 10 feet tall. Still rather large piece, 60 segments, mostly ink and oil on paper. Um, that the, here's some from my Vore series when I was very interested in Italian horror films. On, I actually did depict, you know, um, anyway cannibal type stuff. So I wanted to, to kind of make these feel, <laughs> <laughs> I like, I, I opposite what I just say, I just counter myself. But these are almost like film posters where the person who drew them ha has not seen the films. But um, this one, this piece, uh, Red Exit, and this image is, is taken at the Bulkley Gallery in Minneapolis. But um, this was made into, this image was made into a billboard that was put at the end of the High Line. And then if I'm allowed to say, the Whitney uh, Museum purchased it, so it's in the collection. And I hear it'll be up this summer, if you wanna see it in the flesh. Um, but again, this, this piece is like stacked, 10 stacked landscapes, and it's, there's so much denial worked into being able to access that space, red exit, you know, this like kind of externalness. Um, in this piece, I kind of wanted to celebrate spaces that natives make for ourselves. Um, where we have full agency, um, but this was also right coming, you know, it was put on the end of the high line when people were starting to get out more. We're not really post-pandemic, but you know, with that kind of idea of like we're finding health, there's earth divers um, in Anishinaabe uh, storytelling. We have this, this recreation of the world story where all of these animals dive down for a little piece of mud to recreate the world on, and I feel like 
coming out of that experience of, of you know, the COVID lockdowns and things. It, it was like we were reaching for that medicine to like um, really self-analyze and figure out who we were for, for survival into the future. So I put these various animals in that are, are earth divers as well. So recently, um, during the, actually during the pandemic 2020, my friends and I started Zooming because we were lonely. And um, we uh, decided that we wanted proximity. We needed to be close to each other. And so we um, were like, we need a, a space that uh, Native people can, can see ourselves in Chicago. There's no like Native art galleries in Chicago. Uh, no commercial or, and then the, the native artists that do have gallery representation by Chicago galleries don't live in Chicago. There's this huge denial of the, of uh, native artists in Chicago that just, we, we, we don't have rep local representation. Our representation is all outside of Chicago. So, um, but we're like, we shouldn't request that of these spaces, we should make it ourselves. So um, we got startup funding from the Terra Foundation of American Art and then um, space in the Marquette building, which is um, where the MacArthur Foundation is located. They've given us space for three years, and we're currently building that space out. This is at Chicago Expo. We've done a few booths right now. There's at least one artist <laughs> in the audience, um, John Hitchcock on the side, and then um, going from left to right, John Hitchcock, uh, Monica Rickard-Bolter, Holly Wilson, who was just mentioned, uh, Tom Jones, Deborah Yuppa Papan, and her husband, Chris Papan, who are also very amazing artists. Monica, Deborah, and Chris are co-founders of Center for Native Futures, along with myself. The other uh, image has Dakota Mace, Tom Jones again, and Holly Wilson. And this was the last Chicago Expo. So, but that's, so that's the future part. We're gonna make it, we're gonna make the spaces. <laughs> Hello, is this on? It's on. I'm Joe Federson. Um, I'm Joe Federson. I'm a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes. And I, I live on uh, the traditional lands of the Okanagan, one of my uh, tribal uh, affiliations. Um, I taught at Evergreen for 20 years. And since my retirement, I, I moved home to be uh, back in my community to, uh, to participate in our community. And uh, before I talk about my work or anything, I wanted to mention that one of the things that we do in our community is we have a lot of firsts. We have our, our first root gathering, our first uh, uh, huckleberries, our, when a, a young man gets his first uh, deer, it's shared with the community. And I look at this event here, and, and I hear a lot of times people say, this is the first native person here at, at the uh, uh, Whitney. And uh, this is really a, a true thing to celebrate this being first. And it really is important to our people. So thank you. It's really great. Uh, I'd also like to thank everybody that took the time to be here and to support us all. It's, uh, it's very important for us, and it creates a, a wonderful vibrant community. Um, I, met, I met Jean in, in about the early 80s. 
there was a strange thing that happened. They have that uh, conference with uh, Native Art History, and it was in Seattle at the university, and I think it was 82 or 83, and they actually invited Indian artists to talk. <laughs> I met Jean, George Longfish, Peter, Peter here, and uh, uh, Rick, uh, and so forth. It was an amazing thing. It changed my life. I met, I met friends that are, are still my friends. This is 40 years ago now. And, and I was just on my first or second show at Sacred Circle, and George and, and Jean came down to the, to the gallery, and they both bought artwork. <laughs> and Jean, Jean's laughing because she does this all the time. I've been to her house in, uh, in Corrales, and, and one time, this was in the 80s, and there was this uh, platform, and it had a sheet over it, and I almost sat on it. It was framed artwork from her collection. It was this high and, you know, three by seven feet across. I can just imagine what was in there. <laughs> she remembers that time. So this is what, my, my, my work is really about me responding to the world around me. And everybody knows Seattle. And this is uh, one of the rainscapes that I made in, in that time. And uh, this is another one from that time. Uh, you know, Jean and, and all of those people I mentioned have been part of my life since the early 80s. And, uh, and Jean and I did this project that was called the West Seattle Cultural Trail. And uh, it's still there today. It's, this is like, 35 years old now, and it it has different uh, after you know, different uh, things along with it, and it has a, this is a viewing station. So you you look through that peak hole and you see photo images trans, uh, transformed onto the landscape. So it's kind of like looking through a slide, and then there's little bits of text about place, about history, about about culture, and and in the sidewalk we embedded. These, these things that reference petroglyphs and the bear and the, and the canoe and the houses and so forth. It was, it was a wonderful experience. And John, again, was guiding me. She was my mentor. She, she walked me through how to, how to work as a public artist. <laughs> and I'm embarrassing her now. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm really grateful for John, and, and I don't know what my life would be without her. Um, uh, this is a piece that, that I made for uh, the Continuum show that was at uh, Battery Park. It's, this piece is called Okanagan, which one of the meanings means coming together and confer, con, conforming. Uh, uh, and this has traditional patterns that are overlaid, and so when you understand the patterns, then they come to the surface. And I was in, interested in about these patterns and the meanings behind them, and and, and that was what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how these patterns are transformed into your mind and, and kind of what they mean. Uh, I was also learning how to, to make baskets and weave baskets. And so I was making all of these small baskets about this big, but you can't show those little baskets in this huge space. So I asked a friend of mine, and I said, how do you make glass? And she said, I'll introduce you to Preston. 
and uh, and she did. And these uh, these are the fierce glass pieces I made with the Preston Singletary. These are traditional forms, and you can see there's a pulse emboss of uh, traditional patterns underneath the outside ones, and these have uh, contemporary urban meanings, like the one on. Uh, this one is a parking lot. <laughs> I can't figure out right and left. And, uh, and it has a, a woman design that's in the, in the background. And the one that's on, on the other side is a highway with HOV lane. And the idea was that people would think these were traditional patterns until they, until they understood that uh, they weren't. And... Uh, and I remember, uh, you know, Vi Hilbert was one of our storytellers in, in Seattle. And she came up to me and Joey, uh, and she came up to me and said one time, she said, Joe, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, this is, you know, my, my, my work is responding to what goes on around me. And, and we always have this tragic kind of thing about our land and, and how we deal with the land. And, uh, about a year ago, uh, a lot of times people place horses out in the landscape, and you know we have a beautiful reservation, but uh, people get tired of their pets and they let them go. And every once in a while, we we have to euthanize a lot of horses. They they just take over the whole area, and they cause damage. and And this is uh, one of our deer spirits surrounded by horses playing. It's it's called uh, uh, inhabited landscape. This is a piece I made for the Evergreen State College, and it was a tribute to Vi Hilbert. And it was because Vi always loved it when I, when I included in my work legends. And this legend goes like this, and, and I think it's really important, especially today. Uh, the legend goes like this. It goes, the creator came and he gave all the people different languages. And they, they had a hard time communicating. The world was different then. The sky was lower. People kept going up into the upper world, and, and it would cause chaos. And somehow they all came together, even though they didn't speak the same language, and they pushed poles, and they shoved the sky up to where it is today. And so you see all of the people on the bottom. They're all brown. <laughs> and, they, and they shoved them up these little crosses, those are the symbols for stars, and the ones that didn't participate became the stars in the constellations above us. What I, what I really like about this and about the legend, it talks about people coming together to make change in the world because, uh, because we can, we have that power, we just need to, to come together and do it. And, and gatherings like this really demonstrate that, that, that we can educate and, and we can uplift people's knowledge and we just have to work together. Um, this is a piece I, I, I'm currently working on. There's one at the, at the Renwick next week. It's, uh, it's called Charmed. And I, I told Jean the name it was it. And she made a piece like 30 or 40 years ago called Charmed. And I was thinking of that when I made this because when I made it for the, the institute, I wanted, I, I, told, I told him I could do three things. I could make a charm bracelet, I could make a wind chime, or I could do a petroglyph. And this incorporates all of them. When this is displayed, it, it kind of tinkles like a chandelier a little bit. And, uh, 
and the shadows become the petroglyphs on the back wall. And it's all made of these things that you could find on a charm bracelet, these little icons about your personal experience. And, and it's about place. So it's like uh, kind of like when we did the cultural trail and we had all these different parts that made the whole, this is kind of like that. It, it brings everything together for, for one piece. And it's, it's kind of in the shape of a, a big blanket. And this is a detail of that. When I, when I made these pieces, I always make prints that go with them. And so I made this whole set of prints, and I didn't like any of them. <laughs> and they stood, people have done that, right? <laughs> they stood in a drawer for six months, and I thought, what can I do? These are like petroglyphs. And I thought, well, graffiti is kind of nice. Maybe I'll just spray paint on them. And so I thought, I have nothing to lose. So I spray painted them. And then I brought them to my gallery. I thought, oh, they won't like that. Spray paint on prints? Uh, Charles was fascinated by it, and then, I don't know if you know uh, Jordan Snitzer, uh, he, he collects prints, he bought them all. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> I thought, well, if, if he's not afraid to spray paint on them, it's, it's great. <laughs> this is a piece I made for uh, uh, Facebook, or I guess it's meta now. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> It's in one of their office buildings in the Seattle area. This is called an, an occupied landscape. And it, it's to think, to remind people that, that they're not alone in the landscape and, and that we're sharing it and that, that everything has a spirit and, um, and that we have to make sure that, that we take care of the others, our, 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 our friends, the animals, and, and everything. When you, see, when you see the horizontal lines on, a, on, on my work like this, it, offers, it often represents uh, our landscape. When we look out on our landscape, you just see lines that are horizontal lines. And, and, and I was driving some friends of mine around, and they said, what kind of a geological formation is that? And I looked at that, and you, and you think, it's, it's just a hillside. And then you go, but they were seeing the, the tracks, the animal tracks that, that over 20,000 years created these lines on the landscape because every pattern you know, is enriched by repetition. And so every footstep in, enforces the patterns on the landscape. And I think about how that everything that we do informs our surroundings and, and is part of us. Um, this is a hand-woven one. This is a, uh, the Burke Museum just uh, purchased this one. It's, uh, one of the original hand-woven uh, highway with HOV lanes. This is a piece that was m made for the uh, High Desert Museum, and they wanted to do something different. They, they wanted to, to have buy artifacts that were used, <laughs> and they wanted people to check them out. You can go to the High Desert Museum and check out this root bag. One of the, uh, one of the things they wanted me to do was to... Uh, uh, um, to make a basket that was used and can be used. And so uh, I had to, you know, my, my dad just passed away and I would take him on drives and, and uh, he didn't really understand our area that well. He was, you know, of German descent. He thought it's vacant. And, I, and you can't argue with somebody that's kind of deaf and he's just talking as we're going around. So I thought I would do one that was a bestiary about place. 
And so these are all the animals, and they're on the black and the or the horizontal lines talking about our existence on this place for 20,000 years. I have a feeling I need to hurry more. Uh, I wanted to do a project that brought people together. And, uh, and it was called Terrain. I invited all of these plateau artists to come together and to make pieces that, uh, that reflected our culture. These are a list of the artists and poets. For some reason, the poets came in and, and it just felt right. And, so I invited all these plateau artists to come together. And when you bring plateau artists together, it, you know, it's a wonderful sense of community. And the idea was that we would, they would send in like five by seven lino cuts and we would print them. And, and one of my friends, Ron, Ron Carraher, he was uh, my photography teacher at, at, a, at UW. He said, Joe, do you know we're gonna do 4,000 prints? because everybody got two. And part of the idea was that we would set aside 15 of the portfolios to go to museums. So all of the younger artists all of a sudden had their work in 15 museum collections. And part of the deal was that if they accepted it, they would show it within five years. So they have 15 exhibitions on their list. And, and the more mature artists, they helped the younger ones. and, and uh, they were obviously the reasons that museums were interested in this portfolio. And it's about helping one another. And when we printed it, we printed it together. And we had book signings. And, and it was a wonderful way to strengthen community and to build friendships across the plateau. Um, and one of the, um, one of the um, writers was, uh, was Sherman Alexi. And this is his, uh, you can tell I'm a master of media. <laughs> this is this one. I love my, res this is by Sherman, late August, early September. I love my reservation. Every lake and river and stream and an untamed tree. I love every insect. I love every root, bitter and sweet. But I love, and I miss the most, is falling asleep in our family camp as the stick, go as the stick games drummed and sang until 3 a.m. Yes, I like every other. I just like every other Indian. Am I haunted by my ghosts, or my cousins? And my cousins have become birds that that now gamble against the Seattle sky. And as they sing and sing the familiar powwow lullabies, I just love the way that everybody responded to to their own uh, way of. I was amazed that you know how you know how busy John is that she would take time for us to do this really small thing. I don't. Oh, thanks. You know, um, thanks. Um, you know, John took time to participate in that, and it's really important. And and this was really successful because it it brought us together. And this is Neil's piece here, and Corky's, and uh, Jim Lavador's piece. 
and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to say this one better. This is uh, Abalone Tears. He comes from there, a secret peripheral society, singing and dancing, nourishing snow. He comes from there, that place carved with rattlesnake trails and eel tracks. He comes from there where eagles slapped abalone teardrops from her iridescent face. He comes from there, a spot where people are born of the blood from the heart of a monster. He comes from there, those that understand why seven giant, giant wicked devils sand trapped. This is by Miles uh, Miller. Anyway, this, um, this piece we did to, to build community and, uh, and to participate in our own culture. So anyway, I want to thank you for your time. Hey, I'm Chaz John. Hey. <laughs> and I'm Nebraska Winnebago, Mississippi Band Choctaw, and European. And I'm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And thank you so much for having me. And just being here is truly an honor. And I'd like to thank the fantastic John Quick to See Smith for the invitation, as well as the uh, ever extravagant Neil Ambrose Smith over there. Also, a huge thank you to Laura and the Whitney Museum for allowing me up here to ramble at you hello this afternoon. And uh, so now I'm just a guy, you know, who likes a story. And one of the most, you know, I'm like a young Fred Savage in Princess Bride. I'm just here for it, you know. And one of the most striking aspects of Jean's work is her storytelling and use of mythology. And she draws upon many aspects of indigenous narratives and symbols to create deeply personal and universally resonant works. They often reflect the struggles Native Americans have faced, continue to meet today, including issues of identity, addiction, and the loss of cultural heritage. Alongside the parallels of strength, resilience, and what I find the most compelling is how her work continually speaks about the importance of becoming and the exploration of ourselves through art. Like Jean, my art functions the way the quickster li or trickster lives in the joints. That was pretty tricky. <laughs> and con making connections, embracing the tension between the opposites, and using any medium that the work asks for. Much like rearranging the symbols of an old dream, my work presents a collection of images composed of eclectic cultural iconography raw dream narratives, and a personal quilt of archetypal patterns that make up the American psyche. And uh, this one is called uh, Must Be That White Boy in You, and it's about a biracial identity crisis and a bad date that I went on. <laughs> and because uh, most of the time, I feel like I'm just crafting together an awkward quilt, you know, and combining parts that make some whole and just trying to make sense of it. And dreams are funny like that. Whether the dream maker is us or something else, dreams speak to us through images and abstract narratives, and it's the unique speaking to the unique. But like a dream, my work requires a host body, 
a narrative to inhabit, and like Jean, often pulling from humanity's collective dreams. Most recently, I've been creating a series of zines that explore the Winnebago hair cycle, which can be found at the gift shop. That's a slide, that one's for Neil. The hare is more than a trickster. He's a different complex. A foolish hero battling evil spirits and monsters, eventually becoming a self-sacrificing savior. This is Hare's project, to create a proper balance in the world that leaves space for the in-between, with humanity at the center. This character, although a cultural hero, is full spectrum. He's sacred and profane. One minute, he kills a monster, brings a friend back from the dead, but then burns some pregnant women alive. Which, you know, that'll happen sometimes, I guess. But this full spectrum is very similar to Jean's. I don't know that's a hard transition, but stick with me. Not that Jean's out there burning pregnant women or anything, but it's in her presentation of this full spectrum as it extends from the complex, often gory history from which she works a history we've all seemingly and collectively have sprung out of. And dreams are funny like that too. You could receive a very sacred dream vision, or it could just be Ray Liotta in a Ferris wheel. And this time he has four corn dogs, and it's all mysterious. And you just never know. And that's something that I think about a lot. And much of which can be seen in my work Spin Your Pins, uh, Sendance Through COVID 2022. This piece was recently included in a group show at the CCA in Santa Fe. When creating this work, I wanted to make something radically personal. And this is my fourth year Sundancing. This dance and community have been incredibly transformative for me. So why wouldn't I want to share it? However, the native art world has its own set of rules. And one of them is not making work about Sundance. After two years of COVID, Tensions were high when our dance finally resumed. This piece was my attempt to capture the experience while hiding personal and sacred symbols through abstraction. And some are only legible to those involved in the ceremony, but many are accessible through the shared visual language of tattooing. I drew inspiration from the connection I made between Plains Ledger drawings and tattoo imagery, both of which use similar symbols to document events many strikingly similar to dream images. And tattoos are one of the most human marks and can be seen on the bodies of my Sundance brothers, many of whom, like myself, have made radical changes in our lives through, or through recovery from addiction. But I'll be out there dancing, you know, on day three, you know, feeling hella sacred. And out of the corner of my eye, I'll see a glimpse of a tattoo of a naked chick on my brother's throat. And the tendency is to chuckle a little bit, you know? Especially when you're out there dancing and fasting with no water for four days straight, you just kind of bro down naturally. And so that, <laughs> this type of humor is included in this piece because it's a raw and human connection to the reality of the living ceremony. But the native art world still has its limitations. Even the curator, Danielle, who shares the same spiritual practice, questioned whether she would receive backlash for including my work in the show, asking literally how much shit she was gonna get. And I told her I hope none, but if she did, just blame it all on me, you know? 
but. However, after the opening, I received a lot of positive feedback from fellow dancers and community members, vastly outweighing any negative. And I believe I couldn't have created or even attempted this work without Jean's early trailblazing, which continually investigates what it means to transform and change ourselves expressively as Native people. And here's my uh, goes in the air fam. Because through the perceived controversy, all I really wanted to showcase was my personal experience in the story of a struggling community that saved their ceremony through determination, commitment, and humor. And that's one of the medicinal powers of Jean's art I most admire, and how it can inspire us to re-examine our cultural narratives. Jean is a master of creating installations that make striking connections between these familiar figures and materials, and her work often invites us to explore our own. And in Jean's ASMR video that's on YouTube, which is very relaxing, um, Jean said about this piece, Indie Madonna Enthroned, that she was making so many Madonnas that she created this one to get rid of the colonial Madonna figure within, pulling it out of her and reconstructing it. I find it such an exciting synchronicity that without having known the story until a few weeks earlier, I'm currently exploring and rearranging the content of another historical female figure. The goddess Columbia, the female personification of Columbus and America as the Venus de Milo. The work is the centerpiece for an upcoming solo show based on 1893 Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition, commemorating Columbus's, Columbus's voyage, which, you know, if that wasn't group, gruesome enough. The fair welcomed 21 million visitors to a dream city of Roman pavilions and the horrific spectacle of a large chocolate Venus de Milo displayed alongside a desiccated corpse of a newborn Indian baby. And through my research, I've become driven to find some kind of resolution by actively re-entering the scene and reimagining it as a historical dream to be resolved. I'm creating a new Venus de Milo, a hollow slip cast mold made of white chocolate with a mold of a human baby made of 14 karat gold held inside. When switched on, an electric current will heat up the gold within, melting the Venus de Milo from the inside out, revealing the golden child and bringing new light through the devouring fat. By speaking through the distillation of these characters and scenes within the America's shallow myth, I hope to create a bridge for overstepping its boundaries. And for me, this work, like Jean's Madonna, is also an invitation to rewrite our stories, to reimagine our history, and to challenge our assumptions about who we are and what we can become by embracing a reimagining of humanity's stories that continue to love us. As Jean's incredible lifelong work and retrospective have demonstrated, history isn't only about the past, but about the patterns, symbols, and stories that make up our future. Thank you. And these are being sold in the gift shop if you want to pick those up too.
good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, John for including me in this uh, important event uh, and acknowledge that uh, Jean, uh, Peter, a uh, generation of artists that were here in New York in the early 19, or in the late 1970s, early 1980s, actually uh, my education in today what sometimes we refer to as indigenous art. Um, I feel I had a pretty good uh, intersectional education to kind of talk about, you know, the uh, black scholar uh, Crenshaw's notion, which is I think the way in which indigenous thought and scholarship has always worked. And so crazy me, I actually thought about this notion of the aesthetic and, uh, and, I, uh, and I began thinking about what you know, the use of that term, a highly European, highly Western European thought, uh, what are we doing with it? What does it represent? How do we appropriate it? Is it something that is meaningful for us? And so what I began to think about is what point are we at? And so uh, I think that we can all agree that we're beyond, in many cases, this notion that uh, the field uh, hasn't changed, it's changed dramatically. And I think Jean's work here at the Whitney is you know, evidence of that, solid evidence. And, and so what I think about is frameworks. I'm consistently thinking about broad frameworks. And so if the aesthetic, the notion of the aesthetic marks the achievement of a society, which we have to argue, that's one of the ways in which the aesthetic is applied. It represents some sort of uh, level leveling or recognition of achievement, I think that uh, we have to think about where we fit as indigenous people, peoples in an ongoing space that refuses to acknowledge its settler status. And so I'm, <coughs> I'm sharing with you uh, part of my process in that very early on I just gave myself permission to do many things at a period of time when most people were uh, specializing in a specific thing and I found that I actually needed to move through a number of different cycles of thought in order to keep motivated and so I'm going to share with you my cycle of thought right now which is an exhibit that I'm working on that marks the centenary of the uh, bundling of Descahe to Geneva uh, after uh, the impact of the Indian Act in Canada in Haudenosaunee communities, specifically at the Six Nation community just outside of Oshwigan, and why the Haudenosaunee felt they needed to send a representative to the League of Nations in 1923. And so this year marks the centenary of that moment. And so I think it does represent this sort of like framing moment of our experience as, Haudenosha as Haudenosaunee people. But what I would argue is that it isn't just a Haudenosaunee experience because Descahe's trip to Geneva, his intervention at the League of Nations, which was the precursor to the UN, actually in the 20th century, I would argue marks the, uh, the real beginning of this international indigenous sovereignty movement. And so, as you all know, I've been talking about sovereignty my whole life. Recently, I've written about uh, 
the kind of sovereignty that I'm talking about, because I think now we're at the point where there are many sovereignties that are people are talking about. And so the kind of sovereignty that I'm talking about is actually a sovereignty of accountability. It's not a theorization of self-determination, but it's actually an application of self-determination. And that's what I see Descartes' work as. So the arc of the exhibit actually has four components. And the components are uh, Haudenosaunee principles. And so this is kind of a framework that I've uh, set up and had to negotiate with uh, leaders in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy as well as uh, our collaborators in Switzerland uh, who have been uh, extremely uh, important in this discussion. And so it's about relationships. And so this idea of each of us today have been talking about what our epistemological or cosmological centers are and how it's grounded and how it's so important to what we do. Uh, I think we've also been talking about, and clearly in Jean's work, this question of justice denied. Because as indigenous people, we haven't achieved justice yet in a global scale or even in the Americas, and in particular in the Americas. And then I'm also looking at uh, this idea of um, anticipating indigenous international law. And so this law isn't just a law, a jurisdictional law uh, that we recognize in the courts in the carceral state of um, most nation states. But this is about a law that is determined by a greater, uh, a greater sense of being in the universe that, all, that I think a number of our people are talking about today. And I think a number of the artists are making work about. And so in order for us to move forward as peoples, as human beings, I think that these two things need to come together. And so also in this exhibit, it's about the role of allyship. And in particular, in this exhibit, when Descahe failed, and he did fail, we were not able to be recognized or speak on the floor at the League of Nations in 1923. And we were not recognized by them as a nation state. And, what's, and, and so in this exhibit, what I'm bringing forward are a number of those documents because everything was written about, everything is documented. There's incredibly deep archives of this correspondence of other nation states uh, initially agreeing to support our petition, but then the Canadian and British arm reaches out and says, we don't want you to do this. And then the kinds of reprisals they would uh, wage against the other nation states that agreed to help us. And so then there's correspondence about this all going away and that they're not gonna bring the petition forward because of the long arm of uh, the British Empire as negotiated through the, uh, excuse me, the long arm of the Canadian state as negotiated through the British Empire. And it's interesting because how do you reconcile that in exhibit with a seemingly favorable uh, environment in Canada today? And so, uh, and so uh, we use, and Peter talked about it earlier, the two row, we remembered that relationship, we appealed to the Netherlands first, and they were actually going to bring the petition forward. But then again, that's the story of it being compromised and sent back. And so the, uh, a section of the exhibit talks about this incredibly difficult journey 
of Biscahe in trying to bring forward uh, this idea that Canada, who was just made a member state of the League of Nations in 1921, had the power to deny the Haudenosaunee the ability to do that in 1923. And so I'm really interested in the way in which history isn't remembered. And, and I think, in, in a way, this is in dialogue with a number of the artists that we're talking about today. It's that we're all deeply interested in our histories and how to bring them forward and how to make indigenous history legible in an environment where often people don't want to remember, people don't want to understand this. And so this is, I think, part of the challenge, and this is, I think, part of the work of the art that we're looking at today. It provides an entry point in order to begin to open up these spaces. And so this is an incredibly important photograph. It represents post-denial, when Descahe was not able to speak on the floor at the League of Nations, but it, what it represents is actually the group of people from Switzerland that came together, and I didn't know this, and this is part of the research of this exhibit, it was actually the women in Europe that actually forwarded and began to do simple things like fundraisers, like things that we still have to do today to fund things in our community, uh, bake sales and you know, doing this kind of community groundwork in order to raise money to create forums for Descahe to bring this message to not only the city of Geneva, the people uh, in Europe, and, he, and to help him travel to tell the story. And so the story is, is something you all know about the Indian Act. It's a move against the traditional government in uh, the Six Nations community at Ashwigan and then the imposition of the elective system. And so I'm very interested today in the language of nationhood, statehood, tribalism, how we use those terms, how, what they are. And so, uh, and so this is actually the photograph that documents that alliance. And there's a new contribution to scholarship here, which is to recognize that it's actually women, European women, that actually supported our people and they were interested in this support because of the women's nomination belt. And they began to understand that within our territories, it was actually the women that would select the leaders. And they also had the responsibility to depose or dehorn leaders if the way in which they were thinking our community should be governed wasn't happening. And so, Another thing that I recognize is, is this question of mapping. And so I'm so glad that so many of Jean's works are about rethinking the map. And so in this exhibit, we're rethinking the map to show exactly what uh, uh, Patricia was talking about, the, the way in which our spaces worked in, and continue to work. And so one of the things that we're working on in this mapping process is that we haven't really ceded our territory, but it's not acknowledged by settler states. But we still feel conceptual ownership of all of the Americas, don't we? 
Indigenous, indigenous <laughs> peoples. This is our place, this is our homeland, and, and this is like a moment in time that we're living through right now, that in the, in the future, uh, you know, we're, our ancestors are gonna be here precisely because of all of the things that people are talking about today, which is this ancient knowledge that's rooted in this place. And that's what's gonna bring us through. And so, I live in a territory right now and I'm at Cornell that is all about uh, the formation of United States based on the dispossession of specifically the Cayuga, then the Seneca, then all the Haudenosaunee from a particular territory known as the Clinton-Sullivan campaign. And so the more we become familiar with the specific histories of displacement, and it's interesting because we scoured map making all over North America, map makers, to look for a dispossession map. And we couldn't find one. And so we're making one. And, and, and it's based on when treaties, because treaties are always seen in this sort of quasi-positive light. But in a sense, treaties are really about the pulling back of our territories and responsibilities. And, uh, and so I'm going through this very quickly. There are actually 60 panels. And there are actually 60 panels. I know I project, but I'm sorry. OK, thank you. There are actually 60 panels in this, so this is just really just the high points. But when Descahe was denied, he came back to the United States um, into the Haudenosaunee homelands on the US side because he was afraid to go back into Canada because he had been accused at that period of time of the theft of the three things that you saw in that photograph, a wampum belt, a silver pipe, uh, two wampum belts actually and a silver pipe. And it's interesting because in this research we found that those objects, those that what we would call material culture or our cultural patrimony are still in the possession of a chief at Six Nations who came forward and has told us that. And so this idea that, you know, this rumor that got started that he had taken it uh, and then the reason why he had to come back through uh, the uh, Eastern door through Mohawk territory and then <clears throat> I think the Haudenosaunee think of this territory shared use space, Joe, so sorry. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so, I don't know, we, we could talk about it later. And so, uh, and, so, uh, and so we came back to this territory and the connection to, I guess my passion for this and the connection to this is that uh, after he gave what was called his famous last speech, uh, which we looked for a recording of in our communities, in the ether there's this notion that there's actually the last speech. And, and we will have a website that you'll be able to go into through QR codes from the exhibit. And <clears throat> what you'll find is all of the archives that we looked at and how it's really improbable that there exists an electronic or even a digitized copy of the uh, last speech, the actual radio broadcast. And so we have tried, but I always say this publicly so that in case anybody out there actually has heard it or knows where the archive is, they can contact me. 
but the, the point is, is that he came back and this last speech I find is no different than the things we're talking about today. It's been a hundred years and the same points that he's making in that speech, we can just read it today uh, and that's it. It's the same point. Okay, and so, and so I guess, uh, and this is just a personal preference of mine, but whenever I'm in this mode of curating, I'm always including artworks in the exhibit because I think the artworks really provide uh, in-depth insight into what these moments are all about. And so I've included a piece by Peter, I've included uh, the discussion of border crossing and where this relates is that when Descahe came back, he went to Tuscarora, he stayed with my grandfather, who's in the middle there, and many of you have seen this photograph in my artwork, and I was thinking about the corn blue room and the use of, um, all of these things are tied together, and, and I was thinking about performance today, and how the only way that we've been able to be here today is that we've consistently had to put our bodies on the line. And so Descahe came back and there's this famous passage called, you know, that he, he said this to my grandfather, it's fight for the line. And at that period of time, that line was about the border that crossed us between the US and Canadian state. I think that line is different today. I think it's because, I th have we eclipsed this moment of the nation state? Have we eclipsed this moment of where is that border today? Where is that line today? And so this is what I feel like many of the works and things we're discussing today are really about thinking about that line. And so, uh, and so, but I do think it comes back to this idea of this balance of power between uh, men and women, that we're struggling to reclaim that in our communities. We profoundly need that. I don't think we've achieved it yet. Um, and, Another work included in here, this idea of another way in which we are inscribing our agency, in, at least in Haudenosaunee territories, is this idea of having a passport to, uh, to uh, confirm our status as, as a nation, I mean as nation. And I mean, I think these are all really interesting questions for us to really begin to uh, discuss after a hundred years, what does this mean? Uh, Andrea brought up this notion of the fourth world. I don't find many people using that category today of the fourth world, but you know, it's a, it's a really important construct that it's almost as if the absence of that recognition. And so, uh, so all of these ideas are, are going to be included. But one of the things that I discovered in this is the dearth or absence of certain photographs in our historic record. And so I recognize that we need to consciously include women in our construct of leadership. And so I thought this, and I believe this will be a significant photograph in the future. And I thought it was important to take because I cannot find one single photograph from uh, over a hundred years of Descahe with his clan mother. And so there have been four Descahes that have held the title, and I cannot find one photograph of Descahe with their clan mothers. 
And so this is a historic photograph, even though it's very traditional and very uh, straightforward, but it's about the historic significance of this, in that this is the title holder today, and he's with his clan mother. And we need these images for the future in our communities. And so sometimes I feel that, uh, that sometimes we overlook even the, even the most obvious things and that we really need to uh, pay attention to this as makers. And so, so where are we? So this exhibit goes through this whole arc and where are we? So this is a photograph of Kenneth Deere, who's one of the uh, representatives for the Haudenosaunee, uh, who works at the international level, who is the person that actually initiated this project. And he's at the permanent forum this past April, and uh, paired with a, a portrait of Descahe. And we still do not have nation state status, we still cannot speak at the UN as indigenous nations. And so I, I would say, but I don't think any of this is a loss or a failure. I think, I think where we are at is that we're at a precipice. And I do think just the veracity of artwork and makers, the number of artists in our communities today demonstrate something. We need to understand what it demonstrates. And I think it begins to demonstrate that we're coming into this moment of recognition globally. And I do, and so then how do we think about this in a bigger way? Because we are the ones that have to author this future. And I do think the artists are telling us this in, with the work. And I think well, for me, I, I don't really make a separation creatively between making an exhibit and making my work um, or from writing a paper. For me, it's all the same. It's, it's just different mediums. And so thank you for Nyawa for letting me share this thought with you today. And if you're in Geneva this summer, when the MRIFs or permanent form is going on, you'll have a chance to see the exhibit. So Nyawa. Okay, whoop. Um, I am Marie Watt, and I um, would like to echo um, all those who have preceded me in just thanking um, the Whitney, um, our uh, hosts um, of this, this beautiful land here today, the Lenape, and um, also all the amazing people um, at um, the museum who've made this program possible, and especially um, John. Okay, I was thinking a lot about black. And part of the reason I was thinking about black is because um, I learned really early on that Jean um, sort of wears black <laughs> as um, armor. And, um, and so I wanted to um, acknowledge the lady in black <laughs> and I wanted to just talk about a few um, words then that I associate with um, this woman in black. Um, she's a rebel, a radical. She's rigorous, 
She's an advocate and a poet. She is a connector. She is a re she's resilient and a storyteller, a trickster and a teacher. She is stubborn as all hell. She is a mentor. She is a vocal matriarch. And uh, she is a rigger, a rigger. And you know, one of the things that I associate with black too is, is mourning. Uh, and we've seen a lot of images um, in the last couple days of people who are no longer with us and I wanna acknowledge them. And, um, and I think we wear black for them as well. Uh, and, and lastly, um, I wanna just acknowledge uh, Jean's resilience. So when we talk about um, kicking open the door, I think it's great. I also want to um, remind people that we need to keep it open with either a crowbar or being Seneca. I would say like a big piece of steel, maybe an I-beam. And um, the other thing I want to acknowledge is that like maybe, and this list is so incomplete for every artist whose name is there, there's like thousands that, they rep that they're connected to. But uh, like 10 years ago at the Portland Art Museum, and I've seen a lecture, John lecture more than once, but she often will introduce a lecture by naming artists and showing work by those artists. And honestly, if the lecture is a, an hour, and a half long or an hour and 15 minutes long, I would say that 45 minutes of that, that presentation is devoted to foregrounding younger artists. And so she's, you know, when I say she's a mentor, um, I actually thought I was the only one who was getting her exciting, like encouraging emails. But of course, like one of the things that's so great about Jean is you do feel like she's one of your you know, really good friends and allies, and but then you, as if we're all in this room sharing this moment together, we realize that we're all receiving those, I'm gonna call it love notes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just want it like, the artists that I've listed before are on the screen right now, some of them came from this lecture in Portland where she actually shows images for every artist, and then some of them come from the Forge collection, and then some were sort of additional, and then some people are in the room and, and I've, didn't put your name on for like, no, you're here. So I just wanna like give a shout out to um, Linda Loma, Loma Heftawa. And actually there's a few people who are not here because they have passed on. So I wanna talk about Gail Tremblay, Michael McCabe, Harry Fonseca, James Luna, Truman Lowe, and um, Jim Denami. All right, so um, we all in this room have a responsibility um, to our ancestors who've come before us and um, this present generation and um, those in our future. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about my work and I thought I would just focus on um, how using this material of tin jingles came into my practice. I was an artist in resident at the Denver Art Museum around 2012 and 2013 and I was invited to um, uh, like I, I basically had a studio there and people could just come in and sit down and sew. And for anybody who isn't familiar with the sewing circles, I oftentimes say, you can come and go as you wish and I'll feed you and, um, and I'll give you a, a print um, in exchange for 
you know, your time and contribution. I think of the sewing circles as not kind of a means to an end, but a means to like making something together. And what we're making is community and conversation and we're telling stories because our eyes are diverted and it's easier to talk um, when you don't have to <laughs> look each other sometimes in the eyes. And so one of the things that happened in Denver is that um, there were two young girls who were part of a day camp and they came in and they sat down and stitched. And one of the young women started talking about her, like they both were powwow dancers, and one um, dancer talked about how she uh, was a jingle dress dancer, and the other dancer talked about how she was a fancy shawl dancer. And so I knew I was coming back to the Denver Art Museum uh, to do a sewing circle while their annual powwow was happening. And so these two images that you see are, are like kind of evidence of this simultaneous event. And also at this table on the far left is my mother and my father, we only see his hands, but I like to acknowledge them. I sometimes affectionately refer to them as my roadies because they um, have like really been so supportive and travel um, so frequently with me. Um, and, and so I always feel them near. So I decided to make this piece called Butterfly, and that's what we were sewing in the, the previous image, hoping that I would see these young women at the powwow, but unfortunately I didn't. But this material really, like thinking about jingles, listening to the, the music at the powwow, the drumming, the singing, even the, f the smells of food, right? Like I think that it, it changed something in my work. So in order, for, like in incorporating jingles into a piece, it meant my work had to move away from the wall because that way a uh, jingle could have the sense that it could move and, and make this like healing sound. And I continued to kind of include it in um, other pieces. And so this piece is called like, I, um, Companion Species, uh, Calling Back and Calling Forward. And so um, for me, while these are maybe somewhat cloud-like forms and somewhat a sunrise-like form, you know, I'm also very interested in how um, the bindings and blankets, they're, they're um, ledger-like in the sense that blankets and especially these satin um, pieces, they uh, physically and metaphysically um, capture or snag our dreams. And um, for any artists in the room and other people, I wa would like you all to start using the hashtag dogs for scale. <laughs> this, this is Lenny, but I also think that like when we see animals in our pictures, um, and actually it, it's a reminder of how, um, how we are connected and related, not just to animals, but like now I'm thinking of like the wood underneath our feet, right? Comes from these trees and these walls were made with you know, the aggregate from stones and sand, the glass in the windows. So um, three or four years ago, I was invited by the Whitney Museum to participate in the exhibition Making Knowing. And in conjunction with that, I worked with the education department to do a community program. And we started with this poem by uh, Joy Harjo called Singing Everything. And um, it goes, once there were songs for singing everything, songs for planting, for growing, for harvesting, for eating, getting drunk, falling asleep, for sunrise, birth, mind break, war, for death, those are the heaviest songs. And they 
have to be pried from the earth with shovels of grief. Now all we hear are falling in love songs and falling apart after falling in love songs. The earth is leaning sideways and a song is emerging from the floods and fires. Urgent tendrils lift toward the sun. You must be friends with silence to hear. The songs of guardians of silence are the most powerful. They are the most rare. So um, what we asked people in the community to do is to respond to this poem and, and coupled with this question, what do you want to sing a song for in this moment? And participants, um, actually, is anybody in the room? Did anybody in the room participate? Can you raise your hand if you participated? See a few participants. Thank you. <laughs> uh, participants were invited to uh, send in a word for something that they wanted to sing a song for in this moment. And I think there's this understanding that it could be something you want to sing a song for today. Um, what you want to sing a song for today might be different from next week or a month from now or even next year. Um, and so we ask people to write their answer in their own hand, right? Because your hand is connected to your body, which is connected to the cadence of your voice. And from that, in my studio, we actually, um, in, we, this is an image of this room, actually. Isn't it amazing how it can just be transformed? There were almost 300 participants in this open to the community sewing circle. It was really, I think, one of the first public education events um, after, it's really hard, you can't really say after the pandemic, right? But well, like when, when things started to open up, and we had like, we were, it, this event got um, like continually kind of pushed back, and it, it was almost like this was the last moment in which we were gonna be able to do this event, and luckily it happened. And I think there was like thirst to come together and be in community and, um, and it was a really uh, amazing and generous day. And so in my studio, we um, use tape, the humble patterning material, masking tape, to um, like basically we tried to uh, mimic the, the word contributions, mimic the gestures in people's handwriting um, in our patterning. And people at the sewing circle, they're invited to stitch on the left side of the tape or the right side of the tape, over the tape, but ideally not through the tape. And sometimes um, you pick up a panel that's already been stitched by someone else. And so um, three pieces resulted from that sewing circle, and they're actually currently on view right now at the Mark Strauss, Mark Strauss Gallery um, through uh, tomorrow. And I think the thing that's really important to know about these pieces and the way they're composed is I was really thinking about the word crescendo. So as, as I go through these three slides, you'll notice that the jingles, um, they change in the way they, are, they gather and are arranged. So this work with this material has taken me to this moment where I wanted to really, the one problem with attaching jingles to cloth is that institutions really don't 
want you to touch it. And there's often this interest in hearing this music and healing sound. And so in my most recent work, I um, am like really like bringing this material into these three-dimensional forms that are more interactive and collaborative. Sorry, I think there was a film, that sound was attached to a film. And I don't know if it's there or not, and if it's not, we're gonna be just fine. So um, in the recent work I've made, it's gonna go to um, Chicago. And when I sent it, uh, before sending it off, um, I really wanted to acknowledge all the like people involved with the fabrication and bring um, friends from the native community in. And so there was this gathering in which Acacia Red Elk um, danced and, and um, had this sound collaboration with these new sculptures. And there's um, 12 new sculptures and three come together to kind of create this, uh, this forest-like uh, environment in which you can kind of walk through these, these sculptures. And then um, there are also a, a accumulation of three in which they're on like disco ball motors, but they like turn slowly and so you can like hear that sound. And if this video works, it's the last thing I have to share, but if it works, I will just say that these, I really considered my prototypes. So, So um, I wanted to s acknowledge when Joe Federson was talking about Bai Hilbert. I grew up um, in the Pacific Northwest, and my mom um, grew up at the Cattaraugus Reservation here in um, New York. And my mom worked in Indian education for 27 years, and she was one of the, she started in the 70s, um, kind of these story circles. And Vi, like, was a really, like, um, like important person in um, our community as well. I mean, she was just important in, in this 
in Washington State and beyond. She was this incredible, incredible person and visionary. But one of the things that I was thinking of, Joe, is that these pieces, like, well, they, on one hand, like, I think of uh, the story of Sky Woman for, for us as Haudenosaunee people, but I also really think, uh, having had a relationship with Vi Hilbert, I also think of um, the story to lift the sky. And what they would say is they would say, yay, a how. Yay, a how. Yay, a how. And, and one of the reasons that they, had, that they needed to lift the sky is the sky was actually starting to come down on these people. And they had to find a common language in order to, and work together in order to lift the sky. And so um, I, I, at some point, imagine an installation of these where there are sticks, because I think that that relationship between the stick and these forms is really important. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so I believe in the interest of everyone uh, having a bio break, a new term I've learned, um, before our um, readings this evening, we aren't going to open it up to questions and discussion, which um, is sad, but I also feel like you each shared such incredible and really diverse approaches to um, the way that your art is made circulates, is, um, can be understood, um, and thinking about how Jean has talked so much over the last couple of days about where ceremony um, resides. Um, I like to think about the way that you all shared this today as um, a sort of continuation of, of Jean's thinking about um, ceremony and our, and our lived experiences. and. Um, We'll have more time for conversation individually <laughs> after the readings, but um, I just really want to thank all of you all for being here. This was, um, it was really sp special for me. Thank you. So as Laura said, ten, we're going to do a 10-minute bio break just to, I didn't know that term, reset <laughs> a little bit. And then please don't leave. Come back. We have the amazing Natalie Diaz and the amazing Hyde Erdrich who will be reading at 6.05.